When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Carla Bonoff brings her Home for the Holidays tour to the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on December 11th. I spoke to the singer-songwriter about recording hits like Somebody's Eyes on the Footloose soundtrack and writing hits for other artists like Bonnie Raitt, Linda Ronstadt, Aaron Neville, and Winona Judd. Hey, Carla Bonoff, hey, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now we're talking because you're coming to the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia, a legendary spot. It's going to be on December 11th and you're calling it the home for the holidays tour. Uh, is this, is this, is it true? This is your first uh, holiday tour you've ever done? It is. I made a holiday album um, during COVID two years ago, just kind of for fun and it ended up coming out pretty good. And so we thought we'd take it out on the road. <laughs> and that album was called Silent Night. So um, tell, give us, give us a teaser of uh, if you know if our listeners hear this and and come out to the Birchmere expecting to hear some holiday tunes. You know what are some of the songs that they might hear on the set? Well, um, also Livingston Taylor is sharing the stage with me, so we will be doing some things together, and I'll probably be doing. The Christmas song and River and In the Bleak Midwinter and an original song. And we're going to do some holiday favorites together. And we'll probably do some of our, you know, our own songs, too. So people it's not it's not 100 percent Christmas music. Gotcha. Be yeah, so you'll get you'll get enough to get in the in the holiday spirit, all the Christmas tunes and everything. But they'll also hear, you know, the the quote greatest hits that they, they love to come see you anyway. Um, exactly. Cool. And you and Livingston Taylor, you know, singer songwriter, you get you go way back, right? You've been friends for a while. Oh yeah. I mean, we've all started out together in the 70s and been circling around each other for years and playing shows. And I opened up for James a bunch of times. So, you know, we all go way back. Well, speaking of going way back, um, I always whenever I have a legend on like yourself or a famous singer songwriter, I, I always want to hear sort of how you got into this racket to begin with. <laughs> it's like, so, you know, how did you wh where did you grow up? You know, what, what kind of music was going on around the house? You know, and how do you how'd you get bit by the bug? That's what I want to know. Well, I think because I grew up really pretty much 20 minutes from the legendary Troubadour Club. Um in the late 60s and early 70s, you know, there was so much music happening and so many acts coming through and playing clubs and concerts. And so I really had this incredible exposure to all of that. Plus, I grew up in kind of a musical family. At least we were encouraged to play piano and I was encouraged to play guitar or any instruments I wanted to play. And I was given lessons. And so I think between that and just growing up during an, an incredible musical time, I mean, growing up with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Motown, 
you know, was just, that just formed my musical palette. And then when the kind of folk music thing started, the singer songwriter thing, sort of late sixties, then it all just kind of gelled together really. And I started playing at the Troubadour on these um, open mic nights they had on Monday nights. Um, and that's where it all began really. So it was the whole troubadour scene that really did it. All right. And didn't you, uh, before you released that own, you know, your own breakthrough album in 1977, didn't, didn't you also start singing um, background vocals for Linda Ronstadt? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Um, I was in a band with Kenny Edwards, who was in the Stone Ponies with Linda and Andrew Gold and Wendy Waldman. So we would often, you know, help do background vocals on Linda's albums um, and vice versa. She sang on mine as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I didn't I didn't really tour with anyone doing that, though. No. Right. Right. But but people did uh, th did hear your songs that you wrote, um, at least three of them, I think, on um, on Linda Ronstadt's 76 album, Hassing Down the Wind. I think you had someone to lay down beside me, lose again if he's ever near you. So um, what was it like, you know, seeing songs that you wrote, you know, being recorded by, you know, such a famous artist? Uh, you know, Linda Ronstadt's a legend now. And, and that was sort of was that do you consider that sort of your, your first big break? Um, well, actually, Bonnie Raitt recorded one of my songs a little bit before Linda did. She recorded a song called Home. So that was kind of the turning point. But it all kind of broke loose. Um, Linda decided to do, I think, Lose Again first. And then she was making an album and she just kept asking me for more. And all of a sudden it turned into her doing three songs, which was pretty incredible for me because I'd been just working and writing and, you know, kind of struggling for like 10 years. And then all of a sudden, you know, she did three songs and she was really at kind of the peak of her career. So it was pretty amazing for me. It really, everything shifted after that. And um, I think it brought a lot of attention to my album too. I recorded the same song. So there was, you know, sometimes a little bit of confusion, but um, I think for the most part, it was really good for me. Now, and you mentioned the Bonnie Ray home, you know, that she covered your your song home. Um, and, and by the way, I do want to get into your your album, uh, your first album, you know, on your own, too. But um, but real quick, since you mentioned Bonnie Ray, what was it like working with Linda versus Bonnie, having them cover your stuff? Like, did you think one fit? I can't even ask you that. That's not fair to say did one fit the song better than the other one, because I'm sure you respect both artists. But, you know, if you could compare and contrast them. I mean, you're, those are apples and oranges. You can't, you know, first of all, they recorded different songs and they're they're so different. So. I think they're both incredible women singers. And so, you know, how lucky was I to get those two women to be singing my songs when my songs were new to people? I mean, yeah. you know. But do you remember right. where you were when you came up with those songs yourself? You know, you, now we're talking Carla Bonoff, the, the original artist herself, you know. <laughs> do you remember where you were when you recorded those? Um, I remember writing them um, in, a, in a funky old house in the San Fernando Valley. We had a uh, like a rented piano in the garage because it wouldn't fit in the house anywhere. It was very cold and the water would kind of leak in there. But um, I'd go out and put my jacket on and play that piano. Um, and I think I wrote all three of those songs actually in that house. It was a rented house that cost $200 a month and four of us lived there. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
I love it. The days when you could rent a whole house for $200 a month. That's bonkers. That boggles the mind nowadays. <laughs> but right. uh, inflation, man. Uh, all right. So Carla Bonoff, the first album, you know, that's the self-titled debut album in 77. Um, that also had what Isn't It Always Love was on there, too. And Lynn Anderson covered that later. So, man, you're getting you're getting all the all the grades covered in your stuff. But tell me about putting together that that, that first de- debut album. Is that was that in the, the house that you're speaking of? Yes, actually it was. And then later on in another house. But, um, you know, Kenny and Ed- Edwards and I had been making demos of those songs and he'd recorded them with Linda and recorded them with me. And so we'd done a lot of homework on those songs, plus the other ones that were on my first record. So when we went in the studio, we were really ready to make that record. And it was really a question of just calling in the great musicians that we were able to have, you know, Russ Kunkel and Lee Sklar and Wadi Wachtel and, um, you know, those guys come in, you play a song once or twice and they are just with you, you know, in the most amazing way without rehearsals at all. So that's how we would do those records and just track them, you know, a song a day or two songs a day. And, um, you know, then later on, I'd go back and do the vocals and stuff. But I had, a, you know, almost I would say, you know, my whole life to prepare to prepare for my first record and then not very much time to prepare for my second. That's how it goes. You know, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so many musicians I've interviewed. It's funny you say that they all say the same thing that you have your whole life to write the first one. And then what, like six months or something to write the second one, usually. Uh, so what was it like then put, putting out that that sophomore one, the Restless Nights in 1979? You know, if. How are you maturing, evolving, or let's put it this way: If Carla Bonoff from Restless Nights was, you know, was giving advice back to Carla Bonoff of the first album, <laughs> what, 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 you know, what would she say? Well, I mean, one of the things that changed was um, after my first album, I was extensively on tour, and when you sing every night, perform every night, all of a sudden your voice gets better, and you know, your interpretation of songs gets better. I really hadn't had that much experience performing live. So I think when I went to do my second one, I felt like a much better singer for one thing. Um, And so I think that was probably the biggest change, but there certainly was pressure because you do your first record and then they put you on the road and you're out on the road for six months or so. And then you come back and you need to make another album. And I really had only one or two songs that I'd written during that touring time. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure to, to just write quickly and get back in the studio because the label really wanted to have a record every year or at the most too. So I think I got it out by two years later. Yeah, just under the wire as far as the label was concerned. (laughs) Uh, And then number three, Wild Heart of the Young in 1982. I mean, that one, um, I mean, that had, I mean, personally was a pretty big mainstream hit off of that one. Um, But uh, had you settled into touring more? Like you said, it was a big kind of culture shock between the first and second album, all the touring you were doing. But by three, are you finding yourself? Are you kind of, you know, hitting your sweet spot? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the touring, you know, after that album, I went out and opened for James Taylor, which was, you know, one of my greatest memories and so much fun for a couple months. Um, And I was still learning, you know, learning watching him or watching Jackson Brown, who I toured with after my first album, Um, you know, being able to watch those guys every night and, and just take that in, you know, very, really incredible for me. But by the third one, I think um, part of what I was dealing with then, and maybe other people like myself was Music was shifting in the 80s kind of to this more techno English rock thing. And um, 
kind of what we were doing was starting to fall out of favor for some reason, you know, just wasn't the trend. Um, so I found that it was harder than I had a harder time with that record and it didn't really do as well. I think just because the environment was different, even though it had a hit on it, um, you know, that song personally was not a song I wrote and really kind of wasn't like what I do. It was sort of an anomaly, you know, compared to the rest of my music. So did Glenn Fry show you that one or wasn't he involved? He yeah, he did. Yeah. He, Glenn was a great, um, collector of obscure R&B records. And um, he played me this record by Jackie Moore, who did it first and sometime in the early 70s. And um, I just thought it was such a cool song. So that's how I found it. Yeah. Wow, cool. Well, um, so it sounds like you're saying you were very proud of the album and thought you were, you know, continuing to, you know, put out good stuff. Even if the music industry was shifting in a more techno direction, you were still proud of it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Um. All right, cool. Well, um, and then, of course, after that, most people will remember somebody's eyes. <laughs> all movie fans, uh, you know, the Footloose soundtrack. Um, any good stories about putting together that one? Well, you know, it's so funny because um, uh, my friend John Boylan was producing one of the songs for that record. And all those songs were written by Dean Pitchford with other people. Dean um, wrote the screenplay and um, the movie and all that stuff. So he just said, do you want to come in and sing the song? And, um, you know, he sent me a copy of it. I listened to it for like 10 minutes. And then I went in the studio. I think I was there a half an hour. Um, and that that song is probably sold more than anything else I've ever done. <laughs> because Footloose has sold so many millions of copies. It's, it's kind of hilarious that the thing I spent the least amount of work on um, actually made me a ton of money. It's just kind of crazy. Um, so you and never know. You probably labored on forever that made no money for you. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I guess it all evens out somehow. You know, it allowed me to, um, it helped me kind of get through the lean years. And so I appreciate that a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Just getting on the soundtrack with all those other, you know, gosh, I mean, of course, the Kenny Loggins uh, title song, Denise Williams had Let's Hear it for the Boy. There's so, uh, almost paradise. Like, you could go down and down and, and there's so many good ones. And, and there you are right there with them. Did you, uh, you know, in addition to music fans listening to this interview, we also have a bunch of movie fans, myself included. So what did you think of Footloose just as a pure fan of watching it, you know, as a movie movie? <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was really good. You know, I thought everybody in it was really, I mean, think about it, John Lithgow. And I mean, it's had such a cool cast and Kevin Bacon, who was new and dancing and um, 
you know, I think it was a really good movie. I mean, it's obviously kind of like it's hung in there, you know, it's been produced on Broadway and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I think that was a one of the, the that big breakout for um, Kevin Bacon. You're right because before that he'd done you know Friday the Thirteenth and Diner and stuff like that, like supporting roles. But that I think that was his first like you know big lead uh, moment. Um, well, awesome. Uh, we've covered a lot, but I guess you know we we might as well round it out and and cover your you know your other album, um, New World, because I know all my life the Aaron Neville duet was was off of that one, and that that was uh, very um, well received. Yes, it won a Grammy for Linda and Aaron for best vocal performance. Um, yeah, I had kind of a break there where I was sort of searching, trying to figure out what to do, and then Columbia Records actually dropped me off the label um, sometime, I don't know, I forget their 80 something. So I don't know, just kind of had kind of a weird period. And then I started writing again and I made that record for um, Danny Goldberg's label, Gold Castle. And, um, you know, a lot of the songs on those, Linda recorded a couple of songs on that one too. So um, I kind of revitalized my career. She had a hit with, um, all my life and why Nona had a hit with Tell Me Why and um, Linda also recorded Goodbye My Friend. So um, it wasn't a huge record for me, but it was a great, you know, getting songs recorded by other people. Yeah, I'm, gl I'm so glad you mentioned the Winona Judd hit Tell Me Why. All of us, my wife included, were huge country music fans. And so, you know, we grew up listening to that song. But um, so I, now that I have the actual songwriter, the hand that, the pen that wrote those lyrics uh, on this interview, what, where, how did you put that one together? Do you remember where you were when those words came to you? Because it's, it's catchy as all hell. <laughs> um, I think it was just about some jerk I went out with. I don't even remember now. <laughs> I don't need to know the actual guy, but, you know, stringing together that those phrases. I mean, uh, do, do you do you sort of remember putting it together? Not really. You know, oh, that's a pretty that's a long time ago. I mean, I yeah. think sometimes, you know, when you make when we were making records, you know, as much as I just naturally would love to write, you know, every song be a ballad. Um, you kind of have to have something up tempo that you hope that radio will play. And so sometimes it's just a effort to go, God, I really need to write something sort of, you know, up and perky. And that's kind of an effort for me sometimes. But I think, tell me why it might have been one of those exercises where you're just going, okay, like, let's write something that can get played on the radio so that the rest of this album gets heard, you know? Right, right, exactly. Um, all right, cool. Well, I know um, uh, you also did um, Carry Me Home in 2019. And there there was a there was I guess that was like your first one back in a while. Like there was a hiatus there. And then, you you know, came back uh, with that one. Um, a, I guess. Why, why did you take such such a big break? And B, um, were you pleased with the result? Well, I did do something in between. I did a live um, album, I think, in 2009 or somewhere in there that um, with a full band. Um, and then between that time and Carry Me Home, we lost Kenny Edwards, passed away. And um, I had been touring with Kenny and Nina Gerber and myself, the three of us. And we lost Kenny. Um, Nina and I just started kind of just doing it as a duo, really. And it sort of morphed into something that I thought was different than the way my other live stuff had sounded. So I don't know. I just thought one day we should just, um, I had a couple of new songs and I had a Jackson Brown song I'd recorded and we just went in on a weekend and just kind of played, you know, kind of did a kind of reinvented sort of unplugged versions of all my songs. And 
you know, when you've been doing this for 30 or 40 years, you know, it's, it's nice sometimes to kind of document the way you're interpreting the songs today, as opposed to 30 years ago. Um, so that was part of my reason for wanting to do that was to sort of say, this is, this is what we sound like now. And this is what our shows are like. And um, just to stay updated, really. Right. So if you want to get a taste of what your live shows are like, it's probably that's a good one to pick up. You get a real sense of the the current, the modern sound. Right. All right. Cool. Well, you know, we, we've pretty much spanned the whole career and I appreciate you, you know, being generous, so generous with your time. You know, when the history is all written and you, you have, you know, clearly you, you have several more decades of music in you. So it'd be cool to see where else you go from here. But um, you know, when you finally do reach in and look back at, at the whole career, you know, how, how do you want to be remembered or, you know, how, how do you think you, you, you stand out from maybe some of your other contemporaries? Oh, I don't know. That's a tough question. You know, I think, you know, my big influences really were, you know, Judy Collins and Joni Mitchell and, you know, Laura Nero. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, I took my influences like that and, you know, and did something inspired and valuable with what they gave me and continued the legacy you know that's really all I can say you know because I'm grateful to all those women for their inspiration yep and I'm sure there's plenty of others that say the same thing uh, about you and you know young artists that that you inspired as well so that's great I hope so All right. Awesome. Well, uh, in the meantime, come check out Home for the Holidays, uh, your first ever holiday tour. It's going to be at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia on December 11th. Uh, Thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Okay, And you can find tickets at um, carlabonoff.com and there's tickets to shows there or I'm sure they can find the Birchmere online. Yes, I believe it's birchmere.com. Hey, thank you so much for doing this and happy holidays. You too. Take care. Have a good one. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time. Explain your DNA on on 10 cases, man. You're inside the police interrogation room with the alleged Potomac River rapist. I'm not guilty on any of this stuff. So calm, so reasonable. Could this be the man who terrorized women for nine years before murdering a brilliant scientist two decades ago? Experience one of the most fascinating true crime podcasts available. Join crime reporter Paul Wagner for Unknown Subject, season three of WTOP's American Nightmare series. Search American Nightmare Podcast on all podcast platforms. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.